and they have a section where they like give her a big shout out and recognize her as a you know huge influence an important figure in the world of gospel music wow what <clears throat> hey i'm back we're just talking about some gospel ogs over here i don't know any of them other than alice cooper <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, trying to make a hundred. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Ruggles, trying to make a hundred hallelujahs. (laughs) 99 and a half just won't do, am I right? True. And I'm Peter Cook, purchaser of too much garlic bread for my spaghetti dinner. No such thing. There has never been too much garlic bread, just like there will never be too much cheese. I disagree. Oh. Well, if you want to drive on over from Philly to Kalamazoo and help me finish off what I just wrapped up and put in the fridge before we started podcasting, <laughs> be my right. guest. I'll be there in 13 hours, give or take. Keep it warm for me. I got a microwave with your name on it. Hell yeah. Wow. High quality content, boys. <laughs> Keep it up. This should be one of our premium episodes. Oh my God. What are we doing? Wait. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Praise Jesus. That's right. We're getting straight up biblical on this episode. Peter, what are we talking about? What record are we talking about? We are talking about Newport. 1958 by American gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, which came out on Columbia in 1958, November 17th of that year. And we'll talk more about Newport and Mahalia Jackson, but let's get started by listening to her moving rendition of His Eye is on the Sparrow, side B, track six. When Jesus 
Just wow. <laughs> you know, I'm not uh I'm not a particularly religious man, right? Mm-hmm. But listening to that and listening to this album, I have a hard time imagining her voice being used for anything other than like the highest of purposes, if that makes sense. <laughs> Like, you can't take a voice like that and, like, sing about, I don't know, like, a little gumdrop love song or something, or about shaking your booty, or, you know? Selling Pepsi. And yet, so many of those uh, gumdrop booty shaking songs would have been so much worse if they hadn't, for the most part, been sung by people who either started in the gospel tradition or were highly influenced by it. Yeah, fair. But yeah, I, I don't know, I, mean, I, I, I didn't have something to say right after the song because most of what I could think of was basically what Jeremy just said. Just wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that I gotta say that was like one of the only times where we've played a song and all three of us are listening to it and could be talking over it. And none of us actually did. <laughs> Normally we're like half listening to the song and just like chatting about stuff or talking about what we're going to talk about. But sometimes some records come on and you just got to give it your full attention. <laughs> she commands your attention. Yeah. It's like a, kind of reverence you just know as soon as you hear it you're dealing with a thing that isn't like background music i don't know i'm sure i could phrase this better it's beyond words i'm actually glad to hear that both of you are finding it somewhat ineffable to describe what exactly it is that she how she affects you because i think that's what a lot of people have struggled with. I myself going into this episode, it's like, how do I put this into words? Just listen to her. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't, I don't feel the need to like try to hype this up too much. Yeah. And it's, man, it's one of those things where it just immediately strikes you as being a, a deeply important music. And also it's the kind of thing where I, I, I listen to it. I think, man, I don't know if I could really be close with anyone that doesn't get this. Like, I feel like if I put this record on and someone's like, oh, I hate this, turn it off. I feel like there's just, we're never really going to be that tight, you know? Yeah, that might be the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the basic idea behind that song is that God looks after even the smallest creature. And it had been sang by actress and singer Ethel Waters, whom Jackson admired. And since Mahalia Jackson recorded her version... That song has been covered by people like Whitney Houston, Lauren Hill, Denise Williams, and Kirk Franklin, big gospel singer. But Mahalia's version is considered the definitive version of His Eyes on the Sparrow. Understandably, I feel like once she touches a song, it kind of becomes the definitive version in many ways. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I was talking with my wife, Sam earlier today about doing this episode and she was saying that anytime she needs to 
listen to a hymn or hear how it goes or like play a hymn as an example to someone else she always just looks up the mahalia jackson version because <laughs> any other version would be inferior <laughs> nice she knows what's up yeah this original release that we're listening to is it a mix of live and studio recordings which i guess columbia did with a lot of live albums back then. They did the same with Duke Ellington's Newport 1958, as I understand it. Now, I only just figured this out today, shortly before we started recording. I I dropped off my physical copy of Newport 1958 by Mahalia Jackson at Jeremy's to do this episode. I came home and started listening to the digital version and noticed it was very different. <laughs> and I got very confused. But I did figure out, yeah, so some of these are the versions she performed that night. Others were re-recorded shortly thereafter in the studio and simulated to sound like a live performance. But yeah, so the newer version that you'll find digitally, Mahalia Jackson Live at Newport 1958, is the original concert as it happened. But now that I've clarified that, I'd like to ask what all of our backgrounds are with Mahalia Jackson. And let's start with Sean. Well, Mahalia Jackson is definitely a name that you're definitely going to see a lot out there in the dollar bins, especially when you're digging through gospel or often even soul music sections. Kind of unavoidable. It's one of, She's one of the few names in gospel music that came about as close as you can to a household name without ever transitioning into secular music. And I know that she was a huge, huge influence on a lot of the great soul artists, especially in the 60s. You really couldn't be a soul artist at that time and not be influenced by Mahalia Jackson in some way, especially Aretha Franklin. When she was starting to hit her early success, she got a lot of comparisons to Mahalia Jackson and was viewed by a lot of people as her successor. Mm -hmm. And Mahalia actually mentored her to some degree. Whoa, I didn't even know that. That's cool. Yeah. Jeremy, how about you? Forgive me, Peter and Sean, for I have sinned. <laughs> I I just have to admit that I was wrong and an asshole. In my mind, Mahalia Jackson was like a Costco version of Aretha Franklin. And I didn't really know what she sounded like. I was just like, oh, I'll just listen to Aretha Franklin if I want to hear that kind of music. And that was dumb and wrong. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> well, I think you are far from being alone in that impression. So that's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I honestly, you, for one, you are forgiven, Jeremy. <laughs> and thank you. Yeah. I also wasn't really that familiar with her or at all until the last couple years. I was watching the Stars TV program Power. Are either of you familiar with that one? I am not. It's a good one. 50 Cent produced it, and I almost want to call it like a reverse Breaking Bad, where the where it starts with a guy who's. Uh, come up in a life of crime and has established himself and is now trying to go straight, like, you know, become a respectable business owner, but he's too steeped in the world of crime. There's an episode of that where his, the main character's son was, uh, I guess I'll say he was being held by a corrupt police officer, a woman named Jukebox. She was nicknamed Jukebox because she could sing all the songs on the radio when she was growing up. And 
he starts asking her if she knows certain songs and certain singers. And he asks her, do you know Mahalia Jackson? And she says, Mahalia. And yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) I immediately got the pronunciation correction there because I think a lot of people are inclined to say Mahalia when they see her name, but it is Mahalia. And then uh, she starts singing him that first song that we listened to, His Eyes on the Sparrow, in that episode, Acapella. So I immediately looked into Mahalia Jackson and was like, floored. Oh my goodness. (laughs) This is a hugely important figure in the 20th century music. And I think a lot of people don't know a thing about her. True. And from what I was reading, similar to our Isley Brothers episode, I read a quote from Studs Terkel. If you guys are familiar, he's one of my like favorite dudes. I'm glad to hear and that. He, he's going to factor he, into this. Oh, wait, am I going to like spoil a thing you're going to talk no, about? No, go ahead. Go go right ahead and and say what he had to say. Yeah, I I didn't copy down the quote cuz I'm an idiot, but I'm really self-deprecating today, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jeremy, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and we love you. Gosh darn Dog it. Doggone it. <laughs> yeah. but uh yeah studs turkle was like for one stupid moment i thought i had found i thought i had discovered mahalia jackson but in reality she was just already enormously popular in the black community and studs turkle just hadn't heard of her yet because (laughs) he was a white dude (laughs) yeah he was very instrumental in in getting her to reach a wider or whiter audience And he will, yeah, he's going to factor into this story. So no problem with you bringing him up uh, early on. She has a pretty complex story, and I would like to get started now if you guys are okay with that. Yeah. Sure, let's do it. All right, Mahalia Jackson. She was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, on October 26, 1911. Both sets of her grandparents had been born into slavery, and Mahalia grew up in poverty, raised by a single mother who was a devout Baptist. And they attended the nearby Plymouth Rock Baptist Church, where Mahalia made her debut with the children's choir when she was four years old. Her mother died when she was five, and Mahalia was taken in by her aunt, who was quite strict and had a temper. So church became a haven where Mahalia found safety and music. Her cousin Fred collected records, and while Her aunt was at work. Mahalia would listen to Fred's records on the family phonograph as she scrubbed the floors of the house. Her favorite artist was Bessie Smith. No surprise there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Checks out. Yeah. As Mahalia entered adolescence, things grew worse with her aunt, and she eventually moved with a different aunt to Chicago in 1927. And there in Chicago, Mahalia worked as a maid and a laundress and was soon singing in the choir at the Greater Salem Baptist Church. She also joined the three sons of her pastor at the church in a group called the Johnson Brothers, not to be confused with the Brothers Johnson. (laughs) Um, This was, as I understand it, they were Chicago's first black gospel group. Now, Mahalia's performance style was influenced by the Southern sanctified style of keeping time with one's entire body with lots of animation. And she had lived next to a Pentecostal church in New Orleans as a child. Then she didn't attend that, but she could hear and sometimes see 
what was happening inside, and she took inspiration from their more exuberant style of worship. Now, this had turned off some Baptist elders in the South, but it absolutely it absolutely terrified the more conservative Northern pastors. She was once accused of blasphemy for bringing twisting jazz into the church. And she would just respond with, this is the way we sing down South. She was also told as she started to kind of branch out more that she needed to sing so that white audiences would understand her. So she sought tutelage from a blues musician named Thomas A. Dorsey. And not to be confused with Tommy Dorsey, the jazz musician. And from what I understand it, Sean, you you were aware of Thomas A. Dorsey prior to going into this episode. Yeah, he's definitely kind of a, a forgotten name in music. But uh, for people that have dug into gospel, he's kind of one of the founding fathers of the modern gospel sound. Yeah, he taught her to sing slower to maximize the emotional effect of her singing. And she also sold songs for Dorsey by singing them on the street. There's a few of his songs featured on this album. One of them is I'm going to live the life I sing about in my song, which is the next track I'd like to feature side B track four. That song title could go a lot of directions for a lot of different singers. (laughs) Yeah. Silver in my soul. 
I wanted to make sure that we got at least one minor key song in on this episode because ooh, it's haunting when she sings in those minor keys. Oh yeah. Her, her style fits that kind of vibe so well. I was thinking while listening to that, that she really is one of the great vocal masters of the sense of dynamic in song and in delivery. She hits the those high powerful notes she can emphasize words with so much fire at times. And then the next word will be so much quieter and yet somehow just as powerful in the way that she delivers it. The, the whole thing is just entrancing. As I understand it, she was pretty spontaneous when she would sing too. I don't know that she necessarily would perform a song the same way every time she performed it. I think that's pretty common with gospel music or at least this kind of gospel music. Yeah. It's very in the moment <laughs> type of music. Mm-hmm. So after the members of the Johnson brothers went their separate ways, Mahalia Jackson began a solo career. She was hired to perform at funerals, political rallies and revivals. And she termed herself at the early stages of her career, probably the first 15 years or so. She termed herself a fish and bread singer, meaning she was working odd jobs between performances to make a living. Now she did eventually go to beauty school and opened her own salon. And we'll see. She was quite the entrepreneur in 1936. She married a man named Ike Hockenhall and her reputation as a singer grew in the Midwest. She started recording for Decca records in 1937. The first gospel artists signed to the label and she toured around. She performed in cities as far away as Buffalo, Birmingham and her birthplace, New Orleans. But Mahalia refused to cross over into blues and jazz like other gospel singers like sister Rosetta Tharp and Clara Ward. So her recording career stalled for several years. And this time she divorced Ike Hockenhall who had gambling and alcohol problems did not really prove to have the ability to manage her career. Like he kind of set out to do early on, uh, by 1946, she was performing again and signed with Apollo records the following year, 1947, she recorded the song that would change everything. And that song was move on up a little higher song by W Herbert Brewster. And it would become one of the best-selling gospel records of all time. I I guess it sold something like 8 million copies. And because of that, Mahalia Jackson became a superstar. She started appearing regularly on Stud Turkle's television show in Chicago. He had radio shows and television shows, as I understand it. That Studs Turkle, Jeremy brought him up earlier, he's all over the place. He was a historian. I messaged former guest of the show, Steve Plastic Crime Wave Krakow, who lives in Chicago, shortly before we started recording. And Steve said that (laughs) you can get run out of Chicago for not knowing who Studs Terkel is. (laughs) (laughs) Mahalia had big international hits that gained her a following in Europe, and she toured there successfully. She made her debut at Carnegie Hall. Or Carnegie, I can never remember. Is it Carnegie Hall, technically? 
<laughs> uh, it depends on which host of NPR is currently on. Okay. That's, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> it's like on, on NPR, they say it both ways. Yeah. <laughs> well, she made her debut at that place in 1950. She performed at Carnegie Hall a number of times. In 1954, Mahalia Jackson signed with Columbia Records, who offered her a four-year contract for $50,000 a year, which is the 2021 equivalent to almost half a million dollars. That's a big contract. And Columbia had the ability to promote her better than than she had ever been promoted before. They also set her up with CBS because uh, that's all tied together. So that Mahalia Jackson hosted both a radio and TV show where she and others performed gospel music. And she insisted that the, uh, I think it was the TV show, she insisted that Studs Terkel be her co-host. Uh, this was during the time of the Red Scare, and Studs was on their radar and they wanted him to sign all these contracts. If he was going to be performing with her, he wasn't into that. And they were like, well, then Studs isn't, Studs isn't going to be your co-host. And she was like, uh, if, if you don't get Studs, then you don't get Mahalia Jackson. And so they <laughs> conceded. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. She was sassy and outspoken. And so, love it. Yeah. Um, and it was a popular show, but it was short-lived. I guess the head of CBS, Bill Paley, was concerned about white Southern audiences' reaction to a program with a black person as the primary focus, thinking he'd, they would lose advertisers from those states. So he gradually scaled Mahalia's programs down before canceling them. But, typical, but those programs, along with a 1956 appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, lifted gospel music from churches into mainstream America, you know, pretty much all by way of Mahalia Jackson. This was just unheard of. A gospel superstar in the 1950s America. And she refused to cross over into secular music. And she was still, you know, just getting all the accolades, selling all the records. She started appearing in films. She made her screen debut in 1958 alongside Nat King Cole in the movie St. Louis Blues. And that, 1958, is the same year that she appeared at the Newport Jazz Festival. It was actually her second time performing at the festival. The first time had been the previous year, 1957. She was among the first gospel singers to perform at the Newport Jazz Festival. And the response to her performance in 1957 was so overwhelming that she was asked back the following year. And she actually performed twice at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival. First, on Thursday, July 3rd, with Duke Ellington's orchestra. And then again, on Sunday, July 6th, technically Saturday night, but or I should say it was, it was billed Saturday night, but she went on at midnight. So it was technically Sunday, July 6th. She did a more intimate set, which is what's represented on this album. Once again, the version we're listening to is a, some of these are recreations of her performance that night, but, um, That performance was also captured in the documentary Jazz on a Summer's Day, which I recommend everybody check out if you haven't seen it. I second that recommendation wholeheartedly. Have you seen that one, Jeremy? Nope. 
Mahalia's performance is out of this world, and so is Anita O'Day. That that was the first thing I saw from that in a film class a number of years ago, and that was where I, my introduction to Anita O'Day. Great stuff, amazing footage. Her band on here, Mahalia's band, has uh, Mildred Falls on piano. Mildred Falls, who accompanied Mahalia throughout her career. I think they eventually had a falling out towards the end of her career, but for at least 20 years of her career, Mildred Falls was there. We also have Linton Mitchell on organ and Tom Bryant on bass. I really love the combination of the piano and the organ on this record in that gospel music setting. I would like to, at this point, feature another track, Didn't It Rain? I guess it had been raining leading up to Mahalia's performance that night, and by the conclusion of her first song, the rain stopped and did not start up again until the end of her performance. So yeah, let's uh, listen to Didn't It Rain, side B, track one. I'm a star. <laughs> now, I don't know if you want to hear me and you want to stay in the rain. I'm just getting warmed up. instruments playing and one person singing but that feels like a whole choir (laughs) it really does it's such a minimalist setup and even the 
the few background instruments that there are, are are mixed below her vocal so much that you sometimes even kind of forget that they're there a little bit. Mm -hmm. And yet the recording never seems lacking in any way. It's still just so full and so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's about as much as I can put into words right now. It's, uh, it's just, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And you know, the benefit of this being yet another, underappreciated in our modern times artist is these records are so cheap and honestly like there's valuable gospel records out there but man most stores most places that you're going to find records just don't put any thought into their gospel sections and you can find some real some real heat in the gospel bins for one dollar maybe slightly more but usually not a whole lot of money yeah no i think this is maybe the album of hers that you're most likely to find. I don't know if you can attest to that, Sean, if you've seen this one around it, it sold a lot as I understand it. Honestly, the stuff I see most of hers are the Christmas records, mm-hmm. which are also dope. If you're into uh, gospel Christmas music, which is, you know, I understand a small portion of the current music buying population, but uh... yeah, I think I bought this album for five bucks, which just seems idiotic to me but you know what that's fine (laughs) like (laughs) that you can get music on this of this caliber for next to nothing Mm -hmm. well mahalia jackson in addition to being a performer she was politically active i mean i guess you could say she used her performance to be politically active she performed in the white house for president eisenhower she sang at jfk's inauguration i think We've had other artists that we featured who did that, but she also traveled with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. throughout the South singing powerful gospel hymns before his speeches, including just before his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. in 1963. And so she had been traveling around with him, had heard him speak at a number of other rallies, and as he's giving his speech in Washington, D.C. that day. He's going off of, uh, I think it was kind of his pre-written script. And the I Have a Dream speech as we now know it had been something he had been developing. She had heard him perform kind of a rough draft of it in uh, Detroit. But it was largely improvised in the moment. And it was actually... Mahalia Jackson, who yelled out, tell them about the dream, Martin, that then prompted him to go into what we now know as the famous I Have a Dream speech. So she played a pretty critical role that day in a very historic moment. Yeah, I have forgotten about that little story. Um, I've, I've also seen some of the footage of her performing at that same speech before MLK. And it's no surprise, very moving, especially because she's just up there on the podium surrounded by people with like no accompaniment. And then just, just owns these songs acapella through this PA systems. I mean, uh, the tone was fully set for when he (laughs) jumped on there and delivered the famous speech. (laughs) The inspiration was in the air. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. She was quite close with him. She later sang at his funeral And she was a force in the civil rights movement. She became good friends with 
the Reverend Jesse Jackson, as well as Lyndon Johnson, and especially his wife, First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson. By 1968, with the death of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, she withdrew from the political front. I think that was kind of that point that a lot of people had just, uh, you know, we talked about that on the Phil Oaks episode as well, that I think a lot of people who were fighting really hard had just been through so much that it was they they walked away sadly and she also had developed health problems not long after her initial commercial success in the 1950s she had difficulty breathing she was constantly fatigued this actually prevented her from touring europe in 1952 she was diagnosed with sarcoidosis which is the growth of tiny collections of inflammatory cells in the organs throughout the body. And she underwent surgery and was better for a number of years, but health problems resurfaced in 1964, right about the time that she married her second husband, a former studio musician who is now in the construction business. He was from Gary, Indiana. And his name was Minters Sigmund Galloway. Now, one night while Mahalia was driving home from a concert in St. Louis, she had an uncontrollable coughing bout. And she checked herself into a hospital in Chicago when she arrived home. And the doctors told her that she had had a heart attack and that the sarcoidosis was now in her heart. So she spent a whole year in recovery, unable to tour. Her husband, Galloway, would disappear while she was convalescing and then return to tell her that she was imagining her symptoms. He tried to take over managing her career, but he proved completely inept at that. They had many arguments over money. During one such argument, he tried to strike her, but Mahalia ducked and he broke his hand hitting a piece of furniture instead. So Mahalia filed for divorce. And Galloway responded by requesting a jury trial in an attempt to embarrass Mahalia by publicizing their marital problems. But then his own infidelities were proven in the testimony and the jury declined to award him any of Jackson's assets or properties. So, Oof. This, yeah, yeah, this this guy was a real piece of work. And Mahalia sounds like the good Lord uh, picked a side there. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and Mahalia had bank too. She she was at the time of her death, her estate was worth four million dollars, which I think adjusted for inflation would be something like twenty-four million nowadays. Yeah, I saw I was reading that even like late in her career, she'd still kind of do a head count, make sure she's actually getting paid a fair wage on like how many people are there? Mm. Oh, yeah, she was very business minded. Yeah, she kept her mind on her money. And I read that the uh her first husband was like a crazy gambler mm -hmm. and kept gambling their money away. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, she unfortunately did not have the men she chose to marry were not good people. She had a lot of other good people in her life. But unfortunately the two that she chose as husbands turned out not to be the case. And she also, uh, because of her health problems, she was never able to have children and she loved children. Uh, she did start working again 
she was giving she was giving two and three hour long concerts and performing exceptionally well despite all of her, her health issues. And when she wasn't touring, she was spending her time building two philanthropies, the Mahalia Jackson Foundation, which eventually paid tuition for 50 college students. And she also formed a non-denominational temple in Chicago for young people to learn gospel music. Uh, yeah, she liked to focus her efforts on helping out the young, invested a lot in the community. And no surprise, she branched out into business. She had a restaurant, Mahalia Jackson's Chicken Dinners, uh, that she co-owned with comedian Minnie Pearl. And also had a line of canned food. She toured all over the world still, Liberia, Japan, India. Sadly, in 1971 in Germany, she fell ill and was flown home to Chicago where she was hospitalized. And in January 1972, after undergoing surgery, she died in recovery at the all-too-young age of 60. Her friend Aretha Franklin, who I mentioned she had mentored, sang at her funeral, and her friend Studs Terkel delivered a moving eulogy. So, I mean, she, she was in with the best of them. She was the best of them, you know? Absolutely. And uh, I am glad that we have, are able to tell her story here on this program. I mean, this is, I don't think we can even fathom just how huge she was in her day. What a huge, what, what a huge star she was. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, there's not a lot of modern day comparisons for the, the level of fame and importance that she had acquired throughout her life. Especially, uh, especially, you know, from that religious. gospel, yeah, religious music, gospel music background. I mean, there's people who carried that influence into successful careers or transitioned into successful secular careers throughout music history, but very few have attained anywhere near that level with strictly gospel music. Other than jars of clay. <laughs> uh, no comment. <laughs> Is Jars of Clay on your playlist this week, Sean? <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> well, I know all the great gospel singers, but some of our audience might not know them all. So you want to tell them which great gospel singers you've brought them? Are you talking about this little Spotify playlist that I make every week to accompany these episodes? Yeah. Oh. So yeah, I've been a lover and collector of gospel music for a number of years now. As someone who grew up in the church and as I reached adulthood had to kind of rethink a lot of my views on that and where I stand and et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing that I knew I still really identified with and loved is some of the music that came out of the church tradition. And I spent a lot of time exploring more of the early gospel stuff that resonated with me a lot. So a lot of the artists that and songs I put on the playlist this week are stuff from my personal collection. And I got to say also that the times where I've done full gospel sets, especially back in Kalamazoo, Michigan, are some of my uh, worst received DJ sets I've ever done. We used to do the, uh, the open decks night every week that Peter and Jeremy were a part of where DJs took turns doing half an hour sets. And the one week where I did an all gospel set for half an hour, pretty much cleaned out the bar entirely <laughs> of all of the patrons. But anyways, 
If you're one of the, the few people who really loves gospel music, then check out this playlist for some artists similar uh, to Mahalia Jackson, or at least contemporaries. You can hear the staple singers, uh, Sam Cooke's earliest gospel music with the Soul Stirs, also artists like Ethel Waters, Albertina Walker, the Blind Boys of Alabama, Dorothy Norwood, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who we mentioned, and some classic uh, bargain bin gospel groups, the Dixie Hummingbirds and the Brooklyn All-Stars. We hear some Aretha Franklin gospel music on there, Bessie Smith, Clara Ward, a little bit of blues from Reverend Gary Davis, some acapella gospel kind of world music as well. Sweet Honey in the Rocks is another good dollar bin staple for this stuff. The Harmonizing Four, Marion Williams, so much good stuff. You can find that on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to check out this and all other season two playlists. Beautiful. Thank you, Sean. If you guys don't mind, I would like to do a really quick installment of For the Record before we get out of here. Hit them with it. All right, so this is where we set the record straight on misinformation that we stated in previous episodes. On our Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds episode, this is more of an oversight, and maybe you realize this, Sean, and, and I missed it. We talked about how the songwriting team Potter and Lambert who had written Don't Pull Your Love for Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds, uh, that they had also done The Four Tops, Ain't No Woman Like the One I've Got. What I did not realize was that Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds actually recorded a version of that before The Four Tops on the second HJFNR album, Hallway Symphony. Did you know that? Um, I knew that they'd done a version of it. I, I only found that out when I was making the playlist for that episode. I didn't know they'd done it first. And I also don't like it nearly as much as the four tops version. It's like a totally <laughs> different song. Yeah. They really, uh, managed to take the majority of the soul out of that track. <laughs> I agree. Um, but I just wanted, I couldn't believe that I had overlooked that on our war deliver the word episode. We mentioned that that we said that that was their album after the self-titled album, which is not true between the self-titled war album and deliver the word. There was also all day music and the world is a ghetto. So just wanted to set the record straight on that. And finally on, this is another oversight on our Errol Garner episode. We mentioned Clint Eastwood and we mentioned Carmel by the sea, but our Patreon supporter, Jim Storch, I hope he's okay with us saying his name, <laughs> pointed out to us that Clint Eastwood was the mayor of Carmel by the Sea from 1986 to 1988. Crazy connection there. I had no idea. I'm just not up on my Carmel by the Sea mayors. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe next time we'll all come correct. Further ammunition for my uh, never-ending argument against Carmel. <laughs> That's all you needed to know. Me and Clint don't see eye to eye politically. We'll <laughs> leave it there. Are you going to mention our uh, Michael Henderson oversight as well? Oh, we can mention that while we're at it. On our Norman Connors episode... It was pointed. Who do you remember? Who pointed this out, Sean? Was it? I don't remember his it, name. Was it Shane Hartman? It real quick. <laughs> was it Shane? Was it? It was. You know what? Let me just double check it. But I'm pretty sure it was. Yes, 
Shane Hartman. <laughs> it was Shane Hartman, the strangely similarly named Shane Hartman, <laughs> pointed out to us that uh, Michael Henderson, the vocalist on that Norman Connors album, performed bass with Miles Davis, right? Yeah, for a while. Like a lot of his uh, 70s electric albums feature Michael Henderson on bass, and we all somehow completely missed that detail. <laughs> so it's a lot of oversights this time around. We thank our listeners for reaching out to us so we can set the record straight. So that concludes this installment of For the Record. And I don't really have anything else left to say about Mahalia Jackson other than encouraging listeners to dig further into her catalog there. You can't go wrong. Yeah. And you know what? You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate gospel music. And I totally understand people who avoid it because of a lot of trauma associated with the church. I have plenty of that myself, but music like this, there's just so much pure goodness in it. And there's something to be said for, you know, uh, listening to the true believers and the people with the real convictions like this, whether you completely agree with their stance or not, there's, there's something important to be learned from appreciating people like this. Yeah. And hearing singing, especially nowadays without any cynicism or irony tinged in it feels pure and beautiful in its own magic way. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, music like this feels like it's a little bit less about being some kind of dogmatic preaching kind of thing. And it's more of a personal message and a more of a, a pure emotion. And also I think it kind of speaks to a sort of imagined ideal of what life could be like kind of thing. We're all trying to get to a hundred and not accepting 99 and a half. True. A hundred hallelujahs are bust. <laughs> well said. Peter, what are you sending us out on? I'd like to leave us on another Thomas A. Dorsey penned song, It Don't Cost Very Much, Side A, Track 4. I think this is a great example of Mahalia's crossover appeal. Why, you know, even though it has religious connotations, it's, it's also just a good song. Would sound good on the radio. I can see why she was the star that she was in her day. So thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Jeremy Ruggles. And this is Mahalia Jackson. It don't cost very much to buy this record. <laughs> oh, I like that. When mistreated, be forgiven when you may be forgiven. Someone to be.